I'm Emily Rowney. And I'm Alicia Holland. This is Bill Camp, the voice of Forensic Files 2 on HLN, and you're listening to Murder in the Rain. In our last episode, Alicia, you talked a little bit about how up until this year, Oregon and Louisiana juries could convict non-unanimously on serious crimes. For my episode today, I thought I'd stay in a similar vein. I'm guessing most people don't know this, but Washington just had a pretty big anniversary. It was the second anniversary of the abolishment of capital punishment, aka the death penalty. On October 11th, 2018, the death penalty was declared unconstitutional in State versus Gregory due to being classified as arbitrary and racially biased. But what's interesting is it was found to be unconstitutional twice before this. It was originally abolished in 1913, reinstated six years later, and then abolished again in 1975 and reinstated later that year due to a citizen vote. Whether you're a supporter of the death penalty or opposed to it, meh, doesn't really matter. I'm not really here for that today. But you know what I am always here for? Fun facts you probably didn't need to know. Okay, Alicia, you ready for some capital punishment facts, Washington State edition? Oh, can't wait. Do you think there'll be a Jeopardy category this year? Oh, I hope so. All right. So capital punishment in Washington required a unanimous vote. If one or more jury members voted against it, it results in a life sentence with no retrial. Only five people have been executed in the state of Washington since the death penalty was reformed in 1976. Basically, the Supreme Court modified it to make sure there were detailed procedures for when it was imposed. There are roughly 80 documented executions since 1904. 100% of them were men. And of the documented executions, the governor with the most executions during his time in office was Clarence D. Martin, who served from 1933 to 1941. He was a Democrat who was born and died in Cheney, Washington at the age of 69. Nice. The number of executions during that time was 18. I think the second place was about 13 in their office, which was held a little a fewer years. Prior to 1998, all executions were done by hanging. Once lethal injection became an option, death row inmates got to pick their poison and choose whether they would die by hanging or injection. What would you choose? Injection. Yep. Now, only three people had that choice given to them. They all chose it. So there have been three executions in Washington using lethal injection. Now, that was just a little bit of trivia to kick this off. You're probably going to learn a bit more throughout this case. Or these cases, I should say. Ugh, what are you, me? Because today, we're going to talk about three cases. Those three cases that resulted in lethal injection, capital punishment deaths in Washington State. I would like to remind listeners that our show is listed as explicit for a reason. Not just our naughty language in the bloopers. This is adult content and it's incredibly dark and violent. And in today's episode, I will be describing rape, torture, and violence against women and children. On November 19, 1995, police arrived at the home of Finley, Washington resident Melissa Sarbacher after a 911 call from her neighbor. What police were greeted with was a bloody scene straight out of a horror movie. Outside the residence, they found a woman sprawled on the ground with a gunshot wound in her chest. As they moved inside, they found another woman with multiple gunshot wounds in the living room. 
further into the house, the shocking discovery of a young boy in the master bedroom was made. His naked body was sprawled on the bed, partially covered with a towel. Inside the nearby bathroom, they found wet toys, remnants of water, and speckles of blood in the bathtub. Thankfully, a sole survivor was located in one of the smaller rooms. A young girl was found standing in her crib, but unfortunately she was unable to tell anyone of the devastation she witnessed as she was only two years old. The victims were later identified as homeowner 21-year-old Melissa Sarbacher, her three-year-old son Kievan Sarbacher, and her 26-year-old friend Lisa Vera Acevedo. While the bodies were taken by the medical examiner for autopsy, Authorities began deciphering what happened that night. Police started by interviewing people close to the Sarbacher family and seeking out Melissa's missing vehicle, a Black Ranger truck. After speaking with Melissa's friend Karina Bartnett, who had seen her at least twice that evening, police had a lead on a 25-year-old man named Jeremy Sagastegui. She said he had been at the Sarbacher house babysitting the two children, Kievan, who was three years old, and Tiana, who was just two years old. Another woman, Karen Southam, the cousin of Lisa Vera Acevedo, called to tell police that she had information on the vehicle they were looking for, that Black Ranger truck that belonged to Melissa, a truck she had seen parked outside of an apartment building where Sagastegui lived with a roommate. On November 20th, the day after the murders, detectives arrested Sagastegui and searched his home. He was very compliant. In fact, he told police he would tell them everything and even pointed them to a set of keys belonging to Sarbacher's home and vehicle, his bloody clothes, and a rifle hidden beneath his couch. Thanks to his desire to divulge every gruesome detail of what he did to the Sarbacher family, police were able to record his omissions and put together a clear image of that night. It appeared they were lucky to not only have a confession, but ample evidence and witness testimony to bring to court. The state decided to proceed with three first-degree murder charges against Sagastegui, and they were seeking the death penalty. On January 30, 1996, he pleaded guilty to all three charges. In fact, he didn't appear to want to fight at all. He even wanted to represent himself in court. Not long after this, he stopped taking medications, which included hypertension meds and antidepressants, and he was noted to be acting very strange in jail. This resulted in the judge wanting to ensure that he was actually fit for trial. She refused his guilty plea until he could undergo a medical examination that would ultimately allow him to be determined mentally competent for trial as well as to represent himself. After his 15-day evaluation at the Eastern State Hospital, he was deemed good to go and his previous confession was upheld and could proceed into evidence. In court, not only did Sagastegui tell the jury that he committed the crimes, he said he liked it and that he should get the death penalty for what he did and that he would not be offering them any mitigating circumstances during trial as they might expect from a normal defense team. He then went on to help narrate the events that transpired that fateful night with the help of the recording of his confession and his own testimony in court. On the night of November 18, 1995, Melissa wanted to go out with her friend Lisa, and since she had two small children, she asked a friend to babysit them. It should have been a straightforward night. The kids went to bed early, and they would sleep through the night, so Sagastegui agreed to watch them when she asked him. At some point that night, Kievan woke up and began screaming for his mother. Unable to calm him down, Sagastegui grew angry and turned to violence. 
He placed a pillow over Keevan's head and yelled at him repeatedly to shut up. As his violence and anger grew to a peak, he raped and stabbed the three-year-old Keevan before bringing him to the bathroom where he then held him underwater to ensure that he was dead. After killing Keevan, Saga Stegui took a rifle from Melissa's bedroom, one she used for protection, and waited for her. He planned to kill her. He was going to sit and wait for her to walk in and shoot her right there on the spot with her own weapon. He then described to the court how he did just that. The women came home, and when they opened the door, he didn't hesitate to fire shots at both of them. Lisa was hit right as she walked through the door, and it caused her to fall backwards outside the house. The medical examiner confirmed that Lisa had died from a single gunshot to her chest. However, Melissa had been shot twice, once in her chest and once in her neck, which ended up traveling up through her brain. Saga Stegui described that he asked both women how it felt as they were dying and described how Melissa had terror in her eyes as he believed she realized that he had been there alone with her children and must be wondering what he had done to them. After admitting to what he did, he told the court that Melissa was the worst mother in the world and that her son was going to grow up to be a molester and a murderer because he had clear signs of being molested and he was just a bad kid. He knew what he did was wrong, but he didn't have any remorse. He said that he enjoyed killing them and claimed that he hadn't started the violence with an intent to rape Kievan. That just happened. That at first he wasn't even aroused, but eventually became so, likely due to the escalating violence that resulted from his anger. Needless to say, he was found guilty, unanimously, and he was sentenced to death. A quote from the high court said, if there was ever a case that justified imposition of the death penalty, this is it. He then joined the 15 men already on death row to await his execution, a day that would be set for two years in the future. Saga Stigui's mother, Katie Vargas, fought for her son's life, and while she did so, the death penalty was on a stay. She fought for him even when he asked her not to. He said he didn't want to appeal, yet she was desperate to save the life of her child. The Ninth Circuit Court approved that her evidence that her son was sexually abused as a child and suffered from mental illness was in fact enough to warrant her another hearing. Yet Governor Gary Locke and the U.S. Supreme Court proceeded with the lifting of the stay because they said they felt he was mentally competent and the state had the right to execute him. Mere hours after that stay of execution was lifted, they proceeded with the death penalty for Jeremy Sagastegui. This was October 13, 1998. He would become the first person to die by lethal injection in Washington state, a choice he decided on over death by hanging. At 27 years old, he lay strapped to a table and silently accepted his lethal injection. He glanced to the onlookers before looking away, and he offered no final words. However, those that sat in during his trial likely remember the haunting words he left everyone with. I got a thrill out of the killing. It gave me a great sense of power. I liked it. I'd like to do it again. Don't you get it? I killed. I loved it. I want to do some more. And because, let's be honest, most of us are interested, his final meal was pizza, fries, corn, jellied fruit salad, ice cream, and an eclair. Corn? I love and corn. And jellied fruit salad. All right. Now, I like a nice ambrosia salad. I'm not going to lie. But I recently started eating corn with that. Was that tahine? Yeah. Oh, it's life changing. But as a final meal? Yeah, I don't know what I'd choose. That's a lot of pressure. 
Yeah, it is. James Homer Elledge was by no means a nice guy. In 1956, and at the tender age of 10 years old, he was living in a juvenile detention center for the crime of breaking and entering. Within two years, he did it again and once again found himself at a similar facility. There wasn't really anyone at home that was going to help him through these challenging times. His father was suffering from mental illness and his mother was an alcoholic. The challenges at home, paired with the death of one of his sisters, forced him into a downward spiral and he started abusing alcohol as a 10-year-old child. In his teens, two of his brothers committed suicide and shortly after that, he went out into the world on his own at the age of 15. Needless to say, when he wasn't hospitalized for mental illness, he was taking up residence in jail. At 22 years old, he robbed a Western Union office in New Mexico. And that's not all. When he left, he took not just money, but a young woman by the name of Linda Sue Gullion. He raped her, hit her in the head with the butt of his gun, knocking her unconscious, and poured gasoline all over her in an attempt to kill her. After pouring the gasoline, he had returned to his car, maybe to get a lighter, but while he was away, the girl ran for her life and flagged down a truck and was able to narrowly escape with her life. Once caught, he was sentenced to 10 to 15 years for kidnapping and only ended up serving seven and a half. And the best part is that actually included extra time for escaping prison. So he's doing time for kidnapping, escapes prison, gains an additional two to 10 years, but only serves seven and a half. And in 1972, he ended up making parole and moving to Seattle, Washington to start a new life. In 1974, Elledge was living in the El Dorado Motel, and a disagreement broke out between him and Bertha Lush, his elderly landlady. I'm thinking she was confronting him about paying the rent, but the argument soon turned from a typical disagreement to a violent episode when Elledge beat her to death with a ball-peen hammer, hitting her a total of 28 times. He ended up fleeing the scene and was apprehended days later in a stolen car in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Police found out that he had an open warrant for the murder in Washington, so he gets toted back to the West and earns a sentence of life in prison with the possibility of parole. He then remains in prison till about 1989, so that's roughly 15 years. He gets out on parole, but within months he ends up back in prison due to his old habit of burglary. After an additional five years, he makes parole again and manages to stay out of trouble. Nearly a decade later, Elledge would once again find himself at the center of a very violent crime. In 1998, James Elledge was 55 years old and working as a janitor at the Lighthouse Methodist Church in Linwood, Washington. On the night of April 18th, Elledge invites a 47-year-old woman named Eloise Fitzner for a night out, suggesting that he'll not only buy her dinner but also one of her friends. Now, the interesting thing about Eloise is that Elledge and her had been neighbors, and during that time, they formed some kind of romantic relationship. But it sounds like it wasn't serious, and he was actually cheating on his girlfriend, who later became his wife. Eloise and her friend agree to meet him, and I'm not sure if this is under the pretense of friendship or forgiveness, or maybe they were going to rekindle their romance. But for whatever reason, she and her friend agree, and they arrange to meet him at the church so that he could give them a tour before they go out for the evening. When the women arrived, they started the tour and were introduced to the pastor of the church. 
After a short, polite exchange, the pastor leaves and Elledge continues his tour by bringing the woman to a Bible study room. Once inside, Elledge turns and closes the door behind them. As he turns back to the women, he has a knife. He explains to Fitzner that he is angry about what went down in their relationship the year prior. Apparently, she had written a letter to his girlfriend telling her that he had been cheating on her and that he never really loved her. So maybe Eloise didn't know that he had found out about that letter until that moment, but she was also unaware that Elledge had prepared for this moment. Earlier that day, he had gone to the local Fred Meyer where he purchased nylon rope and he hid it in room 102, the Bible study room. So when he had that knife pulled on them, he slowly reached over, grabbed the rope, and started to bind the woman's wrist and ankles together. Once the women were tied, Elledge covered the friend's face with a sweatshirt, set a Bible next to her, claiming it was for her safety. Elledge then takes Fitzner across the room, placing duct tape across her mouth. Her friend could hear the struggles and pleas from her the entire time. The violence escalated and Elledge quickly put the knife at her neck. He stabbed her in the neck before strangling her with his bare hands. The medical examiner noted that she would have died from either injury and there was no way to know which one she ultimately died from. But he was sure that she was alive when she had been stabbed. After hiding her body under some clothing, blankets, and boxes, Elledge took the friend in her vehicle and drove to his trailer in Everett, Washington. While she was kept against her will in his home, he had raped her. The next day, in a very odd turn of events, he let her go. He told her if she contacted police, he would find her. And of course, she did contact police and they started the hunt for him. Within three days, police discovered Fitzner's abandoned car in Tacoma. They didn't have to look much further because Elledge called police himself to tell them he was hiding in a Tacoma hotel room. In April of 1998, Elledge was charged with one count of aggravated murder. The court entered a plea of not guilty on his behalf, but within a month, the state filed to seek the death penalty and Elledge entered a guilty plea. In his plea, he admitted to harming both victims and committing premeditated murder. Elledge requested that his lawyer not present any argument or evidence that might sway the jury to take pity on him and give him life instead of execution. He even said that, quote, there is a very wicked part of me and this wicked part of me needs to die. The jury felt that his crime was premeditated, cold and calculated, and paired with his long history of crime and violence, they agreed with the prosecution's choice to seek the death penalty. When considering if he did in fact deserve the death penalty for his crimes, four considerations were discussed and ultimately helped them come to an agreement. One, the nature of his crime. Two, the aggravating circumstances, or kidnapping. Three, the defendant's criminal history, the fact that he has killed before. And four, the defendant's personal history. Now, that one's a little iffy for me because of his past issues with alcohol and mental illness. I would assume that would work in his favor. But for the jury, this was in support of capital punishment. The Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty spokesperson, Neil Holkauer, tirelessly fought for Elledge behind the scenes as well as in the media. He suggested that he was mentally ill and that should have been considered fully in his sentencing. He suggested that he had been a model prisoner since he was arrested and even found religion and a deep remorse for his actions. But Elledge didn't want to file an appeal. He wanted to let it go and accept his fate by opting to die by lethal injection. 
On the day of his scheduled execution, Elledge requested a final meal of scrambled eggs, bacon, hash browns, waffles, a sweet roll, cereal, milk, and orange juice. But he didn't end up eating any of it. He refused his meal altogether. Lawyers were on standby in case he changed his mind and wanted to file an appeal, but he didn't. Outside the prison, there were over 100 people, some protesting the execution, others there in support of it. I honestly think most people just assumed there was going to be more action. People were aware of the stay in Sagastegui's case and that it was released up until the last minute, so they were shocked to find out that this execution went as smoothly as possible with no one fighting it. Elledge didn't speak any final words to onlookers at his execution. He didn't even turn his eyes to the audience of 12, which included two of the detectives that discovered the body of his victim and the prosecutors in the case. He declined to eat. He declined to talk. He even declined a sedative before he was strapped to the gurney. And his final wish was that his decline for an autopsy be upheld. Elledge died at 58 years old on Tuesday, August 28, 2001. He did write final words. His words indicated that he had found God and believed that he had been forgiven for what he did to those innocent victims. He wrote, I leave those who survive me in the comfort of knowing that I died in this faith and have now joined my Lord in eternal glory. Cal Coburn Brown had a history of assaulting women. As a teen, he had a number of run-ins with the law, including a very serious offense at the age of 19 when Brown was arrested for a knife assault against a woman in a California shopping center. In 1984, when Brown was a freshman at Oregon State University in his mid-20s, he attacked a woman he had met through her babysitter, who he was friends with. He arrived at the woman's house that she shared with her two young sons. Brown claimed that he had sprained his leg and he asked to rest at her home. She let him in and told him she would call a cab. As she turned to use the telephone, he swung a 42-inch leather thong around her neck to choke her. As he pulled to tighten the thong, she fell backwards and hit the floor, and he quickly climbed on top of her and began to strangle her. She was able to get out a scream, and by some amazing circumstance, a police officer in the neighborhood heard and was able to intervene and arrest Brown. With Brown was a backpack, presumably for school, but inside he had a roll of duct tape and a large knife. He served a seven and a half year sentence for this crime and was released on parole in 1991. The DA felt so strongly that he was a danger to society, one of the worst in fact, that he wrote a letter to the parole officer to tell him that he was, quote, a potential mutilator and killer of women. Two months into his parole, Brown proved the DA's letter correct. He had enrolled once again as a student at Oregon State University and regularly checked in with his parole officer. However, on May 23rd, the parole officer was not able to locate Brown after he was gone for some time. He requested that the police issue a warrant for his arrest. What he didn't realize is that Brown had left town and he was up in Washington near the airport. That evening, he carjacked a 21-year-old woman named Holly Washa by knife point in a hotel parking lot near the SeaTac airport. Initially, he got into the passenger seat and forced the woman to drive while he held a knife against her, but he decided to have her pull over so he could tie her up in the passenger seat, and he drove Washa to the Shadow Motel where he rented a room after he stopped to purchase handcuffs. 
In his room, he forced Washa to undress, and then he commenced an evening of rape and eventually torture. Brown tied Washa to a bed, forcing her legs to be spread, and gagged her with ripped-up clothing. He raped her repeatedly. Brown would only stop his abuse on Washa when he was hungry. He would then have her get dressed, and they'd go to a local drive through to get something to eat, before returning to the motel where he could return to his onslaught of abuse. He also took a break to take her to her apartment where he instructed her to steal checks from her roommate so that he could forge them. Now, something did not go right with that. I don't know if they couldn't get the signatures right or what, but it added fuel to the fire. He took her back to the motel where her nightmare could grow even more unbearable. Brown shaved her pubic hair and began raping her again, this time with foreign objects. For two days, she lay there helpless, enduring his rage. He held Washa against her will for a total of 34 hours. And then, when he finally had enough of her, he put her in the trunk of her own car, slashed her throat three times, and stabbed her in the chest and stomach. Originally, he had parked at the Doug Fox parking lot, but when Washa's blood began dripping out of the trunk onto the ground, he opted to move the car to another airport lot where it would likely go unnoticed a little bit longer. And then he entered the airport and boarded a plane to Palm Springs. A few days prior to the murder of Washa, Brown had been traveling, thus why his parole officer couldn't find him. During his travels, he met a woman named Susan Schnell on a flight to Seattle. They had a casual conversation during the flight and ended up exchanging phone numbers as he intrigued her. What about him was intriguing, you ask? Well, he told her he was a fancy home designer and spoke to her in an Australian accent, even though he's not Australian. So basically, he stood out to her despite his looks because he is not pretty, I'll tell you that. Anyway, they exchange numbers and he ends up calling a few days later when she has a layover in Seattle. So they meet for dinner and make plans to spend Memorial Day together in Palm Springs. So fast forward a few days later, he's killed Washa and now... He's on his way to Palm Springs, where she intends to meet him. Brown and Schnell meet at the Ontario, California airport on May 25th, where she picks him up in her red Corvette. They drive to a local Ramada Inn where they intended to have separate rooms. However, they arrive, the hotel had a mix-up, so they ended up having to share a room that night. They spent the night, and the next day they embarked on a tour of Palm Springs cruising around in her sports car. Throughout the day, they got close, and witnesses even noted that at dinner they were seen kissing and clearly in some sort of romantic arrangement. Once they return to their room, Brown performs oral sex on Schnell, and then he has her lay on her stomach so he can give her a back rub. Now this is where things turn violent. He quickly jerks her arms back and tells her not to scream. Understandably, she does scream, so he slits her throat. She doesn't die, though. He handcuffs her and places sanitary napkins on her neck to halt the bleeding. He explains to her that he just wants her money, but ultimately, like Washa, he ends up shaving her pubic hair and rapes her. Eventually, her bleeding becomes more significant, so he suggests that he leave to go pick up medical supplies so that she doesn't bleed out. While he's away doing that, Schnell is able to make her way over to the phone and calls the front desk, who then calls police. Schnell ended up surviving the entire ordeal and was able to give police information so that they could locate and arrest Brown. In custody, he admits quickly to attacking Schnell, but not only that, he tells them about what he did to Washa a few days prior. 
police in Palm Springs reach out to Seattle police to let them know where they could find the body of Washa. In fact, he still had her keys on him that he was able to show police to prove that he was telling the truth. Five days after her death, police discovered her body in the trunk of her own 1985 Oldsmobile. She was wearing a bloody jacket and her purse strap was wound tightly around her neck inside the giant gash in her throat. On November 26, 1991, Brown admitted guilt and was sentenced to life imprisonment in California for the first degree aggravated mayhem, torture, robbery, and false imprisonment of Susan Schnell. Then it was Washington's turn. In December of 1993, court proceedings against Cal Coburn Brown began. Susan Schnell was able to testify in trial in Washington despite arguing from Brown and his lawyers. Her testimony was allowed as it helped paint the entire picture of what Washa endured as their experiences were so similar. The events in California were indeed an extension of the crime spree that initiated in Washington. Brown tried everything. He claimed that double jeopardy was in play based on being prosecuted in California first. I don't know if he was trying to make an argument that they were all related, but that was squashed. Then he says he wasn't adequately read his Miranda rights when he was initially arrested in Palm Springs, but that was all recorded, so they had that proof that he was. By January, he was found guilty and got to learn of his fate. In the penalty phase of the trial, the jury was told that Brown suffered from antisocial personality disorder, sexual sadism, and manic syndrome. However, they settled on the decision that his crimes of robbery, kidnapping, rape, torture, and murder did indeed constitute the death penalty as the DA suggested. Unlike the men mentioned earlier in today's episode, Brown tried to fight against the death penalty verdict. He filed a claim that his attorney was ineffective and that there should have been a reevaluation of the death penalty in his case. The biggest reason for this was that the judge had removed three jurors, two of which were based on their view of the death penalty. One of them was being very transparent about her lack of support of it, calling it barbaric. They were ultimately dubbed substantially impaired for their points of views and removed from duty. Since Brown and his lawyers did not fight that at the time, he believes his lawyer was ineffective at his defense. This claim was not validated. The state did not believe he had an argument and that he was granted habeas relief when he was ultimately saying he hadn't. Brown also argued that his mental illness was never fully factored into his sentencing. He had a history of bipolar disorder, which was documented in court records, so it's safe to say it was considered. While he sat on death row, he filed for multiple stays of execution, two of which were granted, five were denied. Finally, after 16 and a half years on death row, vigorously fighting against capital punishment, Brown was scheduled to die by lethal injection on September 10, 2010. On his final day, he took part in a final meal of pizza, apple pie, root beer, coffee, and milk. When secured in the execution room, Brown offered some robust final words to those that witnessed his execution. For three minutes, Brown took the time to outline the significant disparities between his sentence and other killers out there like Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer from our episode A Scale of Awfulness. He was serving life sentences for his 48 murders while Brown was convicted of only one. While he did not apologize for murdering Washa in his rape and attempted murder of Schnell, 
He did say he understood their family's hate for him and went on to say that he forgave their hatred and hoped that they would get closure from his death. And he ended it with, thank you, God bless you, God bless my family. Cal Coburn Brown was the last person executed in Washington state, and when he died, there were eight inmates awaiting a similar fate on death row. Since the abolishment of capital punishment in 2018, their sentences have been commuted to life in prison without the possibility of parole. One of those lucky bastards is Robert Lee Yates Jr., who you can learn about in our episode Homeboy Wrote Camaro. I definitely plan to tell you the stories of the remaining seven on future episodes. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Caitlin. How are you? Good. You know what I'm sick of? What? Ted Bundy. Jeffrey Dahmer. Gacy. Other well-known serial killers. No, for real, though. I'm tired of hearing about the same cases over and over and over. Me fucking too. That's why we created Luminol True Crime. We are a true crime, conspiracy theories. Alien. Strange happenings. Podcast. We talk. You listen. And and then then it it ends. ends. So we are Luminol True Crime, and we are here for all of those cases that you actually haven't heard of yet, which there are surprisingly a lot of them. Every week, we choose a new theme. Check us out. We release episodes every Wednesday. They're full length, about an hour long each, and we talk about different cases you probably haven't heard of. We have a beer. We enjoy it, and Mm -hmm. it's a lot of fun, so we think that you'll really like it. Yeah, join us. And listen to Luminol True Crime. Bye, kids. Bye, Luminati. Hey, Alicia, have you given much thought to home security? I mean, we do host a true crime podcast. It would be nice to have peace of mind, but it just seems like something that doesn't fit my lifestyle. That's what I thought, too. But then I found Simply Safe. So let's play a game. You tell me all of the reasons why you don't have a home security system, and I'll blow your mind with some reasons why Simply Safe is a good option for you. Yay, a game! Okay, uh, number one, cost. You know, I'm very thrifty, and home security just screams expensive. Simply Safe has tons of packages, so everyone can stay safe on a budget. You can cover just your front door or get sensors on every window and cameras in every room. But for 24-hour coverage, it starts at just $15 a month. Okay, well, paying some stranger to come set up a security system for me in my house during a pandemic doesn't really sound that appealing. Honestly, I'm a little surprised you wouldn't welcome a guy in uniform into your house, but not to worry, it's totally DIY. I set up my own system in 20 minutes. But if for some reason you need help, they have someone you can call. Okay, Smarty, how about for those of us, as example, you and I, who are renters, we can't even paint a wall without permission. How do you expect us to install a huge security system into our homes without damage? That was my biggest concern as well, since I'm a renter. But you don't have to put holes in your wall for Simply Safe. All of their sensors use 3M strips so you don't damage the paint. Even if you move, you can take your system with you. You do love a good command strip. Well, I guess that covers all of my concerns, but I'm sure there are other systems out there too. Why Simply Safe? Well, you mean besides the thousands of real customer reviews and myself telling you it's great? Well, US News and World Report named it the best overall home security of 2020. Why not take a little bit of stress out of your very stressful life and invest in your own safety and security? 
Check out Simply Safe today. Murder in the Rain listeners who sign up with Simply Safe get a free HD camera. Dude, free stuff. Okay, okay. I'm going to check it out by going to simplysafe.com and using the promo code slash rain, which is what you, dear listeners, should do to receive a free HD camera. That's simplysafe.com slash rain. What do you think? I know you have uh, thoughts I, on capital punishment. I have feelings about it. I don't know everything. how dep- in depth we want to go, but not too far. I'm 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 on the fence with it. Like I've said this to you before. I uh I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing to kill some of these people, but I don't have a faith that our justice system isn't racist or works properly for everyone. So until that day comes, I could see uh why you'd be opposed to it i just think these people are some of these people are human garbage like that guy fighting why why would i get it it's like because you're tortured you're top of that scale of awfulness i like to yeah imagine the uh chutzpah it takes to go i only killed one person he killed like a bunch of people like why isn't he getting death penalty too like it's interesting to see one man's comparing his murder to another man's but you do look at, you know, the the doctors and their scale of mm-hmm. of evil. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm adamantly opposed to the death penalty. Every study has shown that it does not uh, deter people from crime. It costs more money to house people that are on uh, death row. That um, it does. That it does. There is no benefit whatsoever. There are too many cases where it was the wrong person, you know, and there were petitions and there were people. There was a guy saying, I did it. There was family saying, no, like... Even the victim's family was like, no, this is not, don't do it. And they still did it. So, um, you know, it's, it's like prison in general to me where it's like, it's not worth having all these people locked up if you have how many percentage of people that shouldn't be there. Um, yeah. I mean, that's a fundamental problem, obviously. I'm I'm not going to disagree with you there. And when you look at what these people are doing that they end up on death penalty or on death row, they are not mentally sound whether it's in that moment or it's so a that's mental actually health let's issue. get into that let's not discuss whether the death penalty should be near yeah or nay let's talk about the mental health aspect right. do i mean obviously you think if you can prove there's mental illness then we should be eliminating that as an option in general well yeah it shouldn't exist and it certainly shouldn't exist for someone if it's like oh they have this 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 and this but the thing is you're never going to get the people that are actually doing it, so these people that you're saying that they're admitting to it or they're caught red-handed where it's absolutely them, but then they're being found to have, uh, you know, significant sort of mental, mental impairment. Mm-hmm. And so it's like the ones that are on death row that don't have the mental impairment, who knows whether or not they did it. But it's like you're sitting here and it's like, yes, it is the worst thing. And you did these horrific crimes that I would say unspeakable, but you're just speaking all up on them. And... It, how you know of course you want them eradicated from the earth but you have to look at that to say their brain isn't working right and that i think people take that as being an excuse or a free get out of jail card or a it doesn't matter as much or they didn't mean to it it's was just an a different kind of imprisonment I think. it's just like your brain's not working the right way to be safe now i will say when this is legal when they were doing capital punishment there is a factor where you cannot have mental retardation right so i think where people were really fighting it was like that should expand mm-hmm. it shouldn't just be because like I've, have we ever heard of someone with mental retardation committing murder? I don't know if I know of one off the top of my head. 
Uh, definitely like not that, off the top that of my head. That, to me, sounds like they didn't understand what that meant at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's kind of an encompassing terminology. Yes. You know, <laughs> really out of date terminology. Mm-hmm. But that was a factor. So I think a lot of people were trying to fight with like, hey, my son was severely abused as a child and he has all these mental issues. We really should be considering another alternative. But when you have a governor who felt it was appropriate in a state that actually voted for it, I mean, what could you do? So it's been a long history for Washington and Oregon still has it. We we had we're on a we're on a stay for our governor previously, yeah. but uh, or actually both governors, but it's still there. You could easily flip the switch and go the other way. The other argument is why should we as taxpayers pay for these criminals mm-hmm. to continue to live their life in a comfortable manner. Because it costs more money to have them on death row between appeals. Actually, and- I just read an article that said that is not true and that it is not, no different than a regular prisoner. So we. So could- if it's no different. Yeah, but what I'm saying is if, if I could choose to eradicate pedophiles and murderers, I probably would. Like the, but, I, but I need yeah, to know so I could- it happened. And that there was appropriate evidence and they did get their... That's what I'm saying. I couldn't do. I couldn't say yes to that knowing that it would encompass the possibility of someone that doesn't. I'm sure. Sorry. No, and we, we have y'all very can, different standards Y'all can on watch it. Dancer in the Dark and then talk to me about death penalty. <laughs> no, I, I totally agree with you. I think there's severe miscarriage of justice in many cases that show why we can't do that. However, if that were resolved, I'm all for it. I personally, I love it when I read a case that some parent killed some pedophile hurting their child i'm like yeah i do it too i get yeah oh i totally get it and the vigilante and if someone harmed my family i'd be like i want to i'll do it myself lock me in a room yeah. with some nail i understand clippers it. And we I'll have empathy that's why we get it yeah I, and i hate i hate knowing that somebody gets cable tv in prison after they murdered some family like it's bullshit but i absolutely understand where you're coming from and we just have different yeah. points of view i'd just rather things. take the money that it costs to have someone on death row to put it into uh not necessarily treatment but just Maybe treatment well, and understanding yeah, treatment. and talking to them and treating the mental health aspect. There, and, There isn't ooh. enough of that. I do agree. Exactly. And learn from that. And then we don't have to house them with cable and we don't have to house them with pizza and we don't have to house them with all these things that like whatever. Then you are able to learn from them and perhaps you can catch people that are at this other. So instead of a kid in juvie that probably shouldn't be there or, you know, maybe if it is extreme, whatever, then they're in juvie. And instead of now having a school to prison pipeline, we can now take that and go, whoa, this kid is checking all these boxes that also follow all of our studies Mm. of all these guys that have done these really horrific things. Let's really put some effort into like focusing on him and getting treatment now. So it's like it could all feed itself and eradicate all the bullshit. Maybe. So what I found interesting, though, about these three people We've got one who fought it. He wants life in prison. Right. Then we've got two guys that are basically committing suicide by execution. Mm -hmm. They want it. They want to move. And it's like, is it because of regret? Is it because they know they're bad people? What do you think? Like, I've heard multiple times, like, in other, you know, I'm sure anyone listening that, you know, lives the true crime lifestyle, you frequently hear where it's like, you know, I know Dahmer talked about that, where it's like, Uh, these guys that are saying I have this monster in me Mm -hmm. and I just want to quell it and I don't want to have to like it's this driving force outside of them and so it's or the little human part of them that wants to kill that monster yeah so I mean that's it's horrific because yeah you're like you know what that's yeah get rid of him that doing that to that kid 
Like that's my nephew's age. I can't, I don't have the words of what that Mm -hmm. would do to me. But then there's, there is a weird feeling of sadness almost to for that like, little human part. Yeah, mm-hmm. to say I know that what this what I did was beyond uh, horrific. Well, the, that and, reminds me I, of like when we talked to Diane and she it. was saying how uh, Tommy Lynn sells like part of her really heard that part of him. Yeah, what she say? I wish human. I could save save, save the little that boy. little boy. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like had had someone given him what he needed earlier, would it be a different outcome? And I always go back to that. It's like we are, we talk about when we pitched our show, exploring that human aspect of these horrific crimes. And that does speak to me. But then it's then it makes me think, is that one guy, Cal Coburn Brown, is he the real devil? Because he's like, I want to live like he's fighting yeah. it. Is it is he just full there monster? Is, I definitely did not feel not that I felt empathetic to the other guys, but almost mm-hmm. um nothing with him where it's yeah, like gross just, get out of here but those other guys like it's, he, and it was so calculated yeah. like he planned and what i didn't talk about was when he met the woman on the plane and killed washa in between there were two other women he tried to set up dates with mm. um one of them thought he was ugly and the other just fell through so it's like he was planning yeah. this. Yeah. he just wanted to do yeah. as much as he could so there and that's the thing and i think that's um i like when we have these conversations especially when it's something that we have a different opinion on because it is the you know these t- difficult conversations is how problems can get solved and how ideas can come out because if i just sit here and go i'm anti death penalty and you say i'm pro death penalty and we leave it at that that's not what this mm-hmm. is it is so not black and white and it is such a big picture and yeah. so many turning parts to where you're like that's the most disgusting thing i've ever heard anyone do to a child and four sentences later Wow, that's really heartbreaking to hear how desperate he wants to die because he can't yeah. control these feelings of hurting. And I others. think that's like, why it's awful. The death penalty the has always been a really hard topic for me because where I can totally empathize with someone who wants to kill someone because of the horrible things they did, I realize there are mitigating factors that make it impossible for me to fully agree with it mm-hmm. because I don't believe our justice system is is working yeah at the very least no one should feel confident in it because no when anyone's (laughs) life is at stake you can't feel that confident like there are always going to be things you hear about a person that are going to appeal to that human side Mm -hmm. so i that's why it's like such a hard topic for me because I, i can see the points of view i actually had a friend of mine um who listens hi hans he sent me an email uh, after we had you know we always make our joke about pedophiles and ha- by joke half joke um not joke not me. joke uh <laughs> no and it was really interesting we had a really uh interesting conversation of oh just, god is he pro or something no just like that there are uh programs where it's like you can work to reform where it's that that driving thing that thing that's in you because you're talking that about- sounds a lot like sending someone to a camp to not be a homosexual that's how I feel. No, because if you're looking at someone and it's like, oh, you were sexually assaulted as a child and now like that's while your brain is chemically forming and now you're older and now you have these tendencies. And it's like, could there be again, this is I know, not a conversation to start, but it's just kind of interesting to think of on another level of like it's not black and white of what reform can be done or what treatment of whatever, you know, and so it's like there there are just so many layers to everything. Mm-hmm. 
so since we last talked, it's been a week, mm-hmm. and I've done some thinking about our conversation on pedophilia, mm. and I did a little bit of research as well as listened to a couple of podcasts, and I kind of want to clarify a few of my thoughts because I do have more understanding for Han's point of view mm. and just how he thinks uh, there are alternatives that could be done. So I want to clarify that I don't think all pedophiles should just be killed because a pedophile doesn't mean you sexually abused a child. A lot of people live with that and don't act on it. Is it considered a like almost like a sexual orientation? Like it's an a- some people fight for that. So there has been research done that in utero, some of these people have developed it and they've born with it and they cannot just get rid of it. It's like you know how you would say a sexual orientation. Okay, a lot of people um, have pedophilia on top of sexual attraction to adults, and then there are people who are only. Um, into children Mm. and so there's a lot of different variations as there are with many things Um, but a lot of people don't act on these urges because they know it's wrong so I guess where I fall is the people that act on it who do not think it's wrong are the ones that I don't think there is any help for and there's a lot of research put into that yes there is a lot that can be done for people who know it's wrong and want help but they are actively seeking it you can't Mm -hmm. just say you're a pedophile i'm gonna help you right these people have to seek it out Mm -hmm. so i've been listening to hunting warhead which is a fantastic podcast it is a lot of hard things to hear but it's very very good and they talk a little bit about that and just the different points of view on it and the, the people who are willing to talk about it so that we can make progress and say hey there are people who can be helped and then there are ones that probably can't um one of the people in the case he cannot he doesn't think there's anything wrong right. with anything he's ever done. And I feel like we're both uh, kind of side. countering our own sides because it's um, – I mean, I definitely have moments whether I'm just casually driving and want someone to die because they're in my way mm-hmm. or uh, – Yeah, there are <laughs> – there are cases where you're just like, yeah, there's nothing. There's nothing that can be done. And right. so as much as I'm – yeah, of course I'm, you know, anti-death penalty and all of that, there are times – that's not to say I disagree with the idea. I mean, you hear these stories and it's that, yeah, that person does not get to share our air or joy mm-hmm. or life or any of it. Um, so, yeah, definitely the people that are in those rings and sharing photos and damaging children. And, they've all acted on it. And, yeah, yeah, they've acted and just waiting to get caught as opposed to I have to get some sort of help. That would be interesting to kind of um, – explore that and maybe even like have a conversation with people that work in the psychologist for sure um, I think I mean it is it's an interesting perspective because we can't just go into everything assuming oh because you have these feelings mm -hmm. you're a garbage human you're going to act on it because there I read some statistic it's like one percent of adults have some sort of pedophilic affliction Hmm. and that does not mean they're going to act on it but but let me tell you this statistic I got it off of hunting warhead over 80% of people in prison for child sex abuse imagery online, mm-hmm. having downloaded it or uploaded it, over 80% of them have laid their hands on a child to do it. That's shocking. Wow. But now of those people, they're going to fall into, I know it's wrong and I hate myself for doing it. And then there's the other sides like, yeah, what's wrong with it? This is a healthy feeling. I'm not hurting anyone. In that case, how would you feel if so there's someone – uh, serving time because they harmed a child or did, you know, circulated images. And if they were asking for help, I'm just curious of on your personal feelings of it would a rehabilitation be because, something that. Yeah, I think I think you should always attempt it. I, I, my biggest fear is 
most of these people will reoffend. That is mm-hmm. just how it is. Well, and that's the cycle too. You know, that it's is, like what right. is, what's the percentage of those people that were also abused? But they and should like, be that's getting that's going to be incredibly high as well. Treatment in prison, mm-hmm. even if so, they have a sentence of say twenty five years. They should be getting treatment because they will get parole usually. Yeah. And then we're releasing them to all. It's like a freaking heyday for Mm -hmm. them. Yeah, because all you've done is built up their network of who they Mm -hmm. know and who's in the circles and all of that. And then there's no preventative measure too, right? So one of these women in this podcast was talking about how she caught this 18-year-old man interacting with her 11-year-old child and cut it off, blocked him, asked him never to contact, went to his boss because he worked with children and said this isn't right. You need to do something. And they still employed him. And it's like, that is an opportunity to correct and and engage somebody to help him. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not saying it would have done anything, but you could try, right? We should not try. Because what's the other option? Okay. So you file a police report and then he gets charged or, you know, if there's something worth charging and then he goes to juvie or he goes to jail and then he comes out and it's like, what has He's come just from learned that. how to hide it better, exactly. learn new ways to do it. Whereas there could be an intervention mm-hmm. to say, it's almost like if you took funding from, from the local police oh, enforcement. Don't even, <laughs> don't even go there. They do talk a little bit about that on that podcast, though, so you should check it out. Yeah. Um, but I just wanted to kind of let you guys know, I don't think everyone's a bad person. You shouldn't judge someone who hasn't acted on something they know is wrong. And I'm trying to think a different way Mm. Uh, i do believe there is a large portion of those people that cannot be fixed and should not be anywhere near near children absolutely um and those are the ones i guess i was talking about yeah but i just want to say thanks for that conversation well thanks thanks to hans yeah thank you (laughs) and thank you know anytime we love hearing from anybody if it's a differing opinion or, you know, looking yeah, at things a different way. Yeah, just don't call us a mean name, but yeah, please just feel message free to us. message us or email slide, us. Slide in those DMs and be like, hey, hey, what about this? And then we'll have a healthy, an argument about it. <laughs> healthy argument <laughs> where hopefully we don't offend each other. But thank you. Thank you very much. So. It's all yeah, and they did say 10 days. And yeah, but they might like, have had to cut their to staff. That's true. Yeah. I'll cut their you staff. Oh. Do you want me to cut your staff? Ew. Off? No. Down the middle like a hot dog? Your <gasps> staff infection. That reminds me. <laughs> hot dogs? This girl was just like slicing brats in half and throwing them on the thing and slapping them. <laughs> like, what, what did it is say? Happening? Like bad breakup? Hashtag? No, she's just like... I, I think I must have followed her for recipes or something. I'm like, who is this and what is she doing? <laughs> She's a real meat slammer. Oh, my God. That's so violent. Look at them. Look at them. All right. On November. <laughs> called police to tell that she. <clears throat> Hello? My friend sent me a meme that said every time you yawn in October, a ghost sticks its dick in your mouth. It's cold, like Edward Cullen. Mm. Edward Cullen. He's got a cold dick? Yeah, he's made of ice. <gasps> Wait. What? Who? He's made of Edward Cullen. The vampires are very cold. Oh, okay. They're made like marble. Really? Their bodies are marble. I didn't know that. Do you That's think disgusting. She ha- so she had to get like that heating lube. They talked about how they'd always have a blanket between them, but when they finally had sex, the, the coldness didn't come up. Although we it all were does, thinking though. it. We we've were all, all thinking it. We've all had a cold winter's morning and we grab things that have not adjusted to human mm-hmm. temperature and whew. Yeah. It's 
Well, she was having sex with a marble statue. Well, Gross. I hope they use that warming wow. lube. Stephanie Meyer really has some stuff going on in her head, huh? <laughs> About sex. Maybe she and likes to masturbate with cold dildos. <laughs> some people do. They take like the glass ones and put it in the fridge. <laughs> the that sounds awful. Yeah. I think I saw that in real sex. Okay. Jam. <clears throat> so good. Literally. Ice jam. <laughs> <laughs> Sequel to Space Jam. Hockey. God, I'm slurring a little bit. Are you drunk? <clears throat> hmm? You drunk? Yeah. Mm. First thing I do, Jägermeister in the morning. <laughs> the Ninth Circuit Court approved. No. Yeah, that was right. Fuck. <laughs> the girl had run for her life and flagged down a truck that was able. Nope. Unable. Yep. Oh. I got one right. And frag. Fragged. <laughs> But while he was away, the girl run for ran. Fuck. Bertha Lush is one of the greatest names I've ever heard ever. in my life. It is. Ever. Are you writing that down? Yes. <laughs> and of course, she's a landlord of a rundown and motel. Old. She she's has old. no choice. She has no choice in the matter. In the El Dorado Motel and had. To, oh, my God. I said I was going to read it. <laughs> and I think of all the fights we ever had. And one of our most brutal fights was over that song, Hungry Eyes, because I didn't know the lyrics very well and i thought it was saying something and she was like really angry about it i was like no it's this and i'm like hmm. are you sure that doesn't sound and we got a fight over that we're like eight it doesn't sound like you at all <laughs> <laughs> including various serious offenses that they what the fuck? murder in the rain is produced and edited by josh mccullough written and hosted by emily rowney and alicia holland artwork by jamie costa Music by Kai Pfeiffer at kyfifer.com. Check out our website, murderintherain.com, for additional information on all cases, a fun interactive map, and be sure to subscribe so you can receive our newsletter. Check out the Mad Props page for coupon codes from some of our sponsors. We love your reviews and seeing them on all streaming platforms, especially iTunes. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And suck my balls. <laughs> Please put that in. <laughs>